Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Do it in French. No. <laughs> Bonjour. <laughs> en France, le programme sanitaire Medicaid. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. We've got Jane Coaston with us here on a special, very special Tuesday. Ezra Klein, back east from California. Back in the studio. Evading the fires that are consuming the west coast of the United States. And separately from that, the fires of Democrats winning House races Too um, soon. have been consuming Too California. Soon. <laughs> um, no, so one of the we, – we talked about this a little bit but previously, but the, the narrative on the midterms has shifted a little bit since the day after Election Day since Democrats did quite a bit better on the West Coast and it's taken a while for California's results to trickle in. But it looks like Republicans are going to lose seven or eight possibly even uh, House seats out in California, which – they didn't have a lot of <laughs> seats in California already, but they're going in particular like four seats in Orange County. Orange where, County, where, where I'm from, is now entirely blue. And and by the way, you know, there there's some really interesting wins out there. So one of the things we talked about on our post-election episode was it looked like progressives had a bad night. Um, one of the, the names that would get dropped in there was Katie Porter, who was actually running in my hometown house district uh, where I grew up. Uh, Katie Porter, she's like the most Elizabeth Warren-like person I've ever met. She's a student Elizabeth Warren. She's a real populist. And it looked like she had lost a close race to Mimi Walters. And then – it looked like she didn't. Um, yeah. So she's probably uh, – it's not fully certified uh, yet, but it looks like very likely to win now. So there's a wipeout in Orange County, which was really the cradle of republicanism for a long time. Nixon, Reagan, you can read this great book, Suburban Warriors. Like something really interesting is happening in California and it's happening, Jane, at the same time that conservatism writ large is becoming in its ideological framework – an undeniably Californian phenomenon. Right. And I wrote a piece this week on California-style conservatism and how that became kind of the intellectual backing of sorts for Trumpism. And it's fascinating because the very notion of this wipeout that took place, you saw like Dana Rohrabacher lose, and he had won almost 
all but one of his races going back since 1988 by double digits, and he lost this election. Basically, now Democrats in the California House have the ability to override vetoes without requiring a single Republican vote. But how California-style conservatism works is that they have never considered themselves reliant on the state GOP. When you're talking to someone like Ben Shapiro and Michael Knowles at Daily Wire, or you're speaking with people who are at Breitbart, or you're speaking with like kind of the California side of conservatism, they are not thinking about, you know, this is what will happen when we get the wheels of power. They are thinking we will never get the wheels of power, so we don't even need to talk about what would happen if we did. It's let me, a, let me back you up quickly because yes. I think that us saying that conservatism is now this California-inflected thing is going to sound weird to people. Right. So make the case to me that California conservatism is so influential. So I think that the case for why it's so and how it's so influential is that basically the pop, most popular conservative outlets that you're thinking of, you know, and it's not National Review or Weekly Standard, it's Breitbart, Daily Wire, it's the ideas that are coming out of Claremont McKenna and the Claremont Review of Books, which is all based in Southern California. That's where the Flight 93 election was written by Michael Anton, who attended Claremont Graduate School. I've gotten many emails from people who are like, no, 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 no. This isn't Claremont McKenna. This is Claremont Graduate School, which is very different because sure. people understandably do not want to be associated with Michael Anton. And Stephen Miller is from Southern California. You have a host of – Peter pe- Navarro. Peter Navarro is from Southern California. You have a host of people who are all – steeped in Southern California-style conservatism, which is not very focused on, you know, tax policy or this, you know, kind of the big ideas conservatism because they are a conservatism that is under threat. And that's in some ways what Trump responded to. While Trump was, you know, a very East Coast Manhattanite, basically liberal, he was responding to the same conceptualization of conservatism. This is not George W. Bush conservatism or even Rick Perry conservatism, both of which were governors of a rapidly diversifying state, being Texas. This is a conservatism that views that like the only thing we can do is trigger the libs and fight people, that there is no idea of them ever getting power. It's about you know, holding back the throngs of leftists and, for many people, brown people. And so, you know, it's all about pushing back and fighting back against this unseen other. And you heard a lot of that in 2015 and 2016 from Trump. And now you have this interesting situation where the California GOP is like, it's bit, you know, someone referred to it a couple of days ago. It's basically, it's a third party in California. And yet California style conservatism is kind of what you see from the conservative movement at large. And, you know, I got some pushback from people like, well, well, wasn't that what Dinesh D'Souza was doing at the Dartmouth Review? And I was like, yes, but he wasn't doing it for websites that attract millions and millions of visitors. I don't know. I don't quite get it. Like they're not trying to wield power. And they also don't appear to have any ideas on any subject. And they don't appear to actually dislike living in California. As someone who doesn't like being in California, (laughs) I don't live there, as do most Americans. So, like, what's – like, what's the real deal with Ben Shapiro? Like, is he just running a scam? Is he, like – insanely racist? I don't even think he is because because no, he what I, it, I don't think so. it just it just seems like a dumb con where like you have these guys who like live in like big liberal cities in California, really enjoy it, don't bother coming up with like boring thoughts about political issues and just 
rip people off with their dumb website. I think that the issue here, and I think that we need to be careful with how we classify some of these people, because I think like Ben Shapiro is an actually conservative person. If you talk to Ben Shapiro about actual conservative subjects, if you talk to him about like the values of limited government and he's read Mm -hmm. Edmund Burke and has like a conceptualization of conservatism, he has found kind of common cause with a lot of people within the new kind of California conservative movement with whom he does not share values or ideas. And that's kind of, you know, when you talk to Eric Weinstein or kind of the intellectual dark web folks, they find common cause because they have a common opposition. So it's not a con. It's not, you know, this is not, this is a little different from kind of the turning point USA kind of grifterness. This is an idea that the opposition they are facing and they, you know, they talk about it being leftist. When I spoke with Ben Shapiro, who was, you know, very distinct that there's a difference between leftists and liberals and that he is not opposed to liberals, but he is opposed to leftists. Uh But this idea that their opposition, which it's interesting because the opposition is seemingly both everywhere and nowhere. You know, a lot of people brought up Sarah Jiang at The New York Times when they talked about like that's what we're opposed to or they're talking about Hollywood or they're talking about culture. You know, just on that point, uh, Elizabeth Brunig made this point on Twitter. She's an opinion writer at the Washington Post that conservatives have political power but want cultural power and liberals have cultural power but want political power. This is a very good point. And I think that that's what you see a lot of kind of the California conservatives. And I, br- I brought this up. Uh, ben Dominic, who is the kind of inventor of The Federalist, which is a conservative website. The said, inventor of The Federalist. I mean <laughs> – But to me, me, this construct where liberals have all the cultural power, this to me is the con. Like this is like conservatives will say that the media is liberal. And so then you say to them, no, that's not true. And you point out that, for example, the most popular cable network is a relentless nonstop conservative propaganda machine. And then they say, well, when we say that the news media is liberal, we mean the parts of the news media. But cultural power, we're not talking about the news media. We're talking about turn on a late night show. Right, like, but, but but Stephen Colbert runs a late night show, and so does Jimmy Fallon. Absolutely, and so does but, Seth but, but, but but what and there if there is a a deep cultural liberalism that informs these shows? But, but what if instead of turning on a late night show, I turned on a more popular show like a prime time police procedural? Right, like if you look at like the highest rated shows on TV, they are all shows about how cops and firefighters are good people, and like. We should worship them. But and they're doing good stuff. Blue, like it's you know, just like, like it's just super conservative. And there's this narrative that conservatives have made up because they're. I, I don't know why they've made it up, frankly. But I just like I don't know why we've like buy into this. Like so, it just seems like the conservative movement at a certain point decided it wasn't going to bother trying to come up with ideas that would improve people's lives in a concrete way. They, they used to try and you, you might agree with them, you might disagree with them, but they just gave up on that at a certain point. Like we're, we're not going to do that. We're not going to have a white paper. We're not going to have an argument. We're not going to say here's why our health care plan will make you better off. So they've like come up with all this – Razzmatazz so, and just like who cares about Seth Meyers? So I, I, I disagree, but in, in it's, I think it's a specific way. So they have kept trying to come up with ideas. You know, if you go talk to Paul Ryan and he will give you multiple versions of his A Better Way paper, if you go over to Heritage – 
and talk to them about their ideas. Like they have white papers. They have researchers. It's just that I think that the concept of fighting over culture is far easier to do. And it's far more accessible because I think, you know, something I I wanted to get at in the piece is as – Ben Shapiro told me is that, you know, they don't really fight about policy because in California they lose on those fights every single time. You know, there's no real need to have the like, and this is what we would do if we were in power. You know, when a Republican presidential candidate hasn't won Southern California since 1988, there's just been like kind of this idea that why even get into these policy fights if that's not something that's ever going to happen for us. And so I think like they do have real ideas. I know you don't believe me, but they do. I, I want to get I don't like actually on either side of this this idea that we're not talking about ideas. There's a very strange way in politics where I see this happen all the time actually on the right. The right will say, oh, you people on the left talking about identity politics, you're not talking about ideas. You're not talking about things that will make people's lives better. You're talking about you know, whether or not transgender people can use bathrooms. Why not focus on healthcare for once, liberals? And I think there's a version of it on the left. I think there can be a tendency to not look at fights over cultural boundaries or the – framework of how we have a discourse around politics or what is considered acceptable in the way we treat each other as ideas. But they are ideas. I think that a conservatism that exists in a context of California liberalism and in a context of demographic change that is completely destroyed, the California Republican Party, is a conservatism that has a number of ideas and they're quite well worked out about what you need to do, among other things, to push back on that culture, um, which is something you see a lot in the political correctness debate. Conservatism has a lot of ideas increasingly about how to create carve-outs for religious liberty that are actually going to undermine huge parts of the bills that we're talking about. It's a conservatism that has a theory about who should be listened to and who shouldn't. And when we talk about having ideas to make people's lives better, Donald Trump and the people who support Donald Trump and, and here, you know, this gets into a more complicated question of which yeah. of these people do and which don't because um, it, it's it, not – It's a very – They're, they're not unanimous issue. on yeah. this. But Donald Trump and a lot of people in the Republican Party think American life would be better if we built a wall and stopped letting in immigrants. And you don't have to like that idea. I don't. It's an idea. I, I agree and, with that. So hold on before you interrupt me. Um, so – I want to get away a little bit from this argument that there's like nothing happening here because I think there is. I think we've talked on this show before about how politics is increasingly being fought on this cleavage that coheres around identity and questions of are you comfortable with a rising diverse America or are you uncomfortable with it? The tendency to look down and say there aren't ideas on either side or that one side isn't trying to make like their people's lives better, they feel like they had a lot more political power and that if the changes in American life slowed down a little bit, that that would be better and like their lives would be better and they'd be able, among other things, to talk on college campuses without being protested, which is definitely an idea that would make some of these people's lives better. Like it's a real thing. It's as real as anything else. I want to be precise in my phrasing. It's not that they don't have ideas. It's that they don't have ideas about how to make the typical person's life better in concrete material ways. Okay, that's a more precise right? way for it. And, and crucially though, it's not that they don't have ideas that have concrete material implications for people. A point that I always try to make on this podcast is that there is nothing more powerful. There's no more powerful force in American politics than the 
absolute sincerity of Republican Party politicians' views on economic policy. And like that to me is the issue here. Like they are all, as elected officials, right, they are relentlessly committed to a vision in which what you have to do is take the richest people in the country and make them richer. And that everything else has to bend behind that fixed point of analysis, right? Because a lot of what happens in politics, whether we want to say politics is downstream of culture or not, like politics is downstream of tax policy. And like they have this tax policy and it's not good for most people, but they don't want to change it. So they got to do something else. And to me, that's like the fulcrum on which all this turns. Like I'm like scrolling through the collected works of Ben Shapiro and it's just like I don't know. I, I want to use a nice word for it. He is not talking about issues that have concrete material implications for the majority of people, right? And there's a reason for that, right? There's like this kind of whirligig that quality to it all that that to me is a sort of a scam. You know, it's like why can't you win in California? Like why don't you try? you know, to like come up with something. Like, like what is all this whining about? It just seems like, I don't know, genuinely baffling and incomprehensible to me. Like in a way that like, like why would you write a book called Brainwashed, colon, How Universities Indoctrinate America's Youth, published by WorldNet Daily Books in May of 2004? Like what is that? Like what, what was Michael Anton's Flight 93 election about? Like, did we crash the plane? Like, is America saved now? Like, does he do <laughs> essays now that are like, because we killed the hijackers, like, it's okay? But they don't seem to think that Trump being in office has made it okay. And like, wh- why isn't it? Like, so I think we're, we're, we're talking about a lot of different things here. And so first, there are ideas that I think that California conservatives, which is interesting because I think that's something that um, I've, you know, chatting with these people, they've started pointing out is that something they've gotten into is this idea that California is where the ideas of the left begin and then will take over the country. Sure. And so the example that I heard used is like same-sex marriage, for example, which – I'm a huge fan of sure. two thumbs up for same sex marriage, but they were like you know people were talking about same sex marriage in the early 1990s in California, right. and that was something that you know if you had talked to people you know I used to work at the human rights campaign, and if you had spoken with people at the human rights campaign in like 1997 about the idea of marriage equality, they were like oh, whoa wild. whoa that's that's not a thing we're going to get that's never going to happen we're interested in the civil partnerships at most, and then you know obviously the wheels of time and justice work and here we are now with nationwide marriage equality and it's great and amazing. But I think that there is this idea that if it starts in California, we see the leading edge of what the left wants to do. Right. And so the second point I want to get to is that— they're they're enjoying Southern California out of— it's an act of self-sacrifice on their part, (laughs) providing intelligence— I think there's a different way of taking that. I want to be very clear here that— this is not, in my view, this is not a scam. This is a understanding of conservatism that is 
different. And I think a vital conversation that's necessary to have if you want to understand the modern conservative movement, because their entire view is shaped on like, I think it's something that we've talked a little bit about before, but you see that nationally that liberals are like, huh, you know, it turns out federalism is good. And when local governments can make decisions that are different from what the federal government could do, that's good. And I think that you see that California-style conservatism is a lot more libertarian on a lot of issues. So something that they really focus on in terms of impacting daily life is kind of deregulation. One issue that happens to come up a lot is why is it that you should need to be licensed to do, like, say, African-style hair braiding? Mm -hmm. And I know that seems like an esoteric subject, but it's something that comes up a fair amount. But also on a larger idea – there are a lot of people within this movement and they don't all agree with one another. You know, Michael Anton's still writing over for Claremont Review of Books about Trumpism and this idea of Trumpism. But Michael Anton and Ben Shapiro and Charles Kessler and Michael Knowles all have very different perspectives. And then you throw in other people who can think of themselves as being classical liberals. But I think it's this idea of apartness that unifies them and this idea of finding unity in their opposition. And, you know, I just want to be clear that I'm fascinated by conservatism, and I always have been, even when it's not a political perspective in which I believe. But I am interested in the ideas that they're putting forward, and I think it's really worth talking about those ideas as being real ideas, not a scam, not something that they are attempting to do to, like, put the wool over people's eyes. It's a real set of ideas and concepts. And in California, it's a specific set of ideas and concepts that's very contextual to the experience of being conservative in a state in which there are few conservatives. Yeah, I agree with that. The other thing I would just say is that I think if you're just going to understand politics right now, you have to understand or try to understand what's going on here. I mean, people exist in collaboration with and reaction to the cultures in which they live. I'm not at all surprised that people living in some place in California don't agree with the broader politics of the state. We know lots of liberals who live in Austin and Texas has very different politics in Austin, but they don't like leave. They, they're very proud of being Texans. Yeah. I mean, that's just not a weird thing at all. But I think beyond that, I have a lot of conversations with people that come up where we'll be talking about, you know, whatever, something going on in politics or college campuses and their view of the world, their view of who holds power and how that power is wielded and what is important in that power just seems completely baffling to me. And then it will just come out that, oh, well, they live in Northern California and their context is just Northern California politics. So what they think is a center of cultural politics is completely different than what I understand to be as like the middle of American politics center. Or I did this podcast that will come out shortly with John Haidt. And one of the things that just came up is at a certain point, it's just clear his view of politics is very inflected by being on college campuses. And my view of politics is forged by being in politics. And just what are the assumptions taken for granted in those places are very different. What I thought was so great about your piece, Jane, is the way in which it foregrounds the experience of losing power through demographic change to the construction of this conservative identity and the set of ideas that surround this conservative identity. You've got a great quote in there from Kessler, who's the editor of the Claremont Review, who says – I wish I'd written it down, but he says something along the lines of immigration is a sensitive topic for California Republicans because we had the experience of seeing it destroy our power, where for most conservatives – 
it wasn't hurting them politically yet at all. And so like we were way ahead of the curve on understanding the centrality and importance of immigration as a political issue. And then along comes Donald Trump and obviously not through consultation with these folks. He just understood it too. But like he makes it the central issue and wins the primary and you know is, is building a conservatism that I think if it, if it is around anything, it's around immigration. And like what are they afraid of with immigration? They're afraid of losing power. And I mean you guys all know I'm writing this book on identity and tribalism, but there is there's nothing that Paul Politics is about more than the question of in the way people actually practice it, no matter what we like to believe around it, then like is my group gaining or losing power? And the experience of being in California, which is a nice place to live. It's not crazy people live there. But if you're a Republican in California, the experience is your group losing power. Stephen Miller is another great example. I have like family members who went to high school with him. And this is all very famous. It's been written about like Stephen Miller was the conservative kid, like the conservative jerk at his high school. He got up. He ran for high school president at high school in Santa Monica and gave a speech about how he was upset that like the janitors were not doing a good enough job cleaning up and how there was all this bilingual education and just like got booed off the stage. And like there is a conservatism that emerges and a liberalism in a different way, but a conservatism that emerges in reaction to feeling like the culture thinks you're an asshole. And like that, it's very powerful on college campuses and it's increasingly powerful in California. And what's crazy to me, what was unexpected, but is that it's now emanating out into conservatism writ large. It's Trumpism. And like it's going to be conservatism for a long time because the overall demographics are becoming more Californian. Well, let's, so, let's take a break and then, then I want, want to talk about demographics in California. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. 
something I want to get in here very quickly is that this is an approach and, um, you know, we went back and forth at kind of edits for this piece. And something I want to get across is that the California-style approach to how to handle demographics is a different one from how George W. Bush, for yep. example, handled right. it and for how Rick Perry handled it. Because I think that if you take Texas versus California in terms of how to deal with changing demographics, you get two very different stories. It's very interesting to me that you see some California conservatives who are like, we need to all learn Spanish because there's no reason why conservatism can't appeal to Latino populations. And you, there's no reason why this can't work. And you see it work in Texas. You see there's a lot of pieces about how Beto O'Rourke couldn't really break through with certain Latino communities because they were more politically conservative. And then you see from a lot of California conservatives that this idea, and you see this coming from you know, the 1980s and 1990s, that an increasing demographic change will inherently render them powerless. And it's interesting how that differs. There wasn't the same sorts of efforts. You know, Jeb Bush can speak fluent Spanish. Jeb Bush went and helped campaign for his father in Puerto Rico and did you know, all of these campaign speeches in Spanish. And this idea that, like, we can reach out to Latino audiences, we can reach out to non-white audiences. I've brought it up 87,000 times because I think about it all the time. But, like, the GOP autopsy document after the 2012 election, when they were like, we can do this. Conservatism can appeal to all of these different groups. And then you see Trumpism and California-style conservatives are like, or we can use our opposition to that type of change and to change in general on our opposition to this behemoth that we term the left mm -hmm. as a political cudgel we can wield. Yeah. And it's interesting how the, like, there were two separate paths. And some California conservatives were like, we should be speaking in Spanish to these audiences about how limited government can work for everyone. And then you get kind of the Michael Antons who are like, no. We don't want to do that. Absolutely not. Wait, I mean, to me, it's interesting that this group seems to have uh, aligned around this, like, demographic fatalism uh, interpretation of what happened in California. Because another interpretation of what went wrong for Republicans in California is, like, the opposite of this, right? That, like, having lost ground a little bit and Bill Clinton wins the state in 1992, they have a Republican governor still in office and he's worried about losing. They decide to, like, break glass in case of emergency, yep. run a campaign about immigrants that is like you know, a, a redeemer Democrat from the 1880s trying to save his state. And it worked in the short term, but it produced a big change in California political culture that swamped them. And then you had a different path where like in Texas, right, like Democrats had been saying for years, like, aha, demographic change in Texas is going to put us over the top. And it kept not happening. I mean, you look Statewide Democrats, 2008, 2010, 2012, 2014, there's no sign of progress being made there, even though the Latino population is growing. And then, you know, 
Rick Perry does does not become president. He becomes uh, a Dancing with the Stars guy and then in a weird, humiliating way becomes energy secretary. It's Don- a strange career path. D- yes. <laughs> Donald Trump becomes president. And like now suddenly Texas Republicans are losing ground, right? Like they lost a House seat in the suburbs of Dallas. They lost a House seat in the suburbs of Houston. But O'Rourke famously came close. He only lost by three points. But the Democratic nominee for attorney general in Texas also only lost by three points, even though like Nobody have even heard of that guy. He's a nice guy, by the way, but n- no offense. <laughs> it just – he wasn't a huge national superstar like, like Beto. Every Republican judge in Harris County lost. And that to me is more like the lesson of California that like when you abandon inclusive – politics, you put yourself at big risk. I mean, not just of Latino backlash, but of backlash among the sort of white college graduates in in the suburbs. And, you know, California, I'm sure they were saying three years ago, like, man, we're out of power here. But it turns out you can do way worse. Whereas in Florida, right? I mean, if you look down into the details, right, like, Florida Democrats, like in 2000, it was on a knife's edge. And it was like, well, growing Latino population, like we're going to get them one day. But Rick Scott, who does not strike me as like a super high charisma guy, he like improved on his margins with Puerto Ricans, with Cubans, because with, with African Americans. Because he did Spanish even. language ads. But because and he his bothered to, didn't but do I mean, them. He, 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 right. But like he bothered to try to like win elections in a changing state. And he, even though he's like a weird Medicare fraudster, like, he, he pulled it off. So there, that, that's politics. There are a couple, I think, super interesting things here. And one of them is that there's a real tension between the missing white voter approach to political yeah. mobilization on the right and the George W. Bush approach to political mobilization on the right. And one of the things that I think is going to be interesting about not just Donald Trump but his legacy in the party is that as you activate certain constituencies in your party, it becomes harder to get away from them, yes. right? The more that you're dependent on a certain political map, like it's like the classic innovator's dilemma. Like you can't disappoint your current customers by going to these other customers. And you saw this happen around the the, the autopsy. There was an idea that maybe the party will change and go in a different direction. And this guy jumped up and said, uh, no, we're not going to change. We're going to like stay right with you and go way harder on the thing you wanted us to say all along and that we've been trying to kind of not say to be more competitive. And I think in some ways, potentially to the Republican Party's long-term detriment, it worked. It worked right there. It didn't get destroyed. It wasn't discredited. And in fact, it was the other approach. It was discredited. You could see all this being remembered as like the Republican Party's Pete Wilson moment when it absolutely wrecked itself for a generation among young people and others. This is why I think some of what's happening among California conservatives is really interesting because it involves a lot of different approaches to this question. I mean, one thing we've been a little bit skating over is that there's a lot of dissension about Donald Trump in that group yeah. of people. So Ben Shapiro left Breitbart around the Michelle Field stuff where Breitbart was defending uh, the Trump administration, I guess at that point the Trump campaign after Corin Lewandowski manhandled Michelle Fields and Shapiro left over that and sort of became an anti-Trumper. I'm not – so admiring of people who finally leave a toxic movement when it comes for their direct friends as opposed to when it came for the other people. But nevertheless, like there's a split around Trump that say Michael Anton, like a Flight 93 who then went to work for Donald Trump or Stephen Miller, who was a good friend of Steve Bannon or forget that, Steve Bannon right. <laughs> who went to work for him. So there was a split on like, do you go in the straight Trumpist, like mobilize a white working class, go fight to death on on the culture in that way front? Or there's sort of this other kind of interesting emergent thing, you know, 
I guess you could call it in this case the intellectual dark web, though I think its political manifestation is going to be a little bit different. But it's a little bit more of an effort that doesn't really like Trump, or at least most of its people don't like Trump, but is trying to develop a worldview in which there's a lot of concern that all these identity politics and the political correctness and all these manifestations of demographic change are going way too far and is framing it in a way that, you know, more college-educated whites can listen to. And you can see if that begins to develop a politics around it, and, and Shapiro is trying to do that and, yeah. and some others are trying to do that, of it having a very different pattern, um, of it looking a little bit more like versions of Texas, um, of it of it being something that, that could be different. It doesn't seem to me to be where the Republican Party is. It's not clear to me that that's going to be a coalition that can survive, but it can definitely survive as a media phenomenon. Right. And I think that it, it's interesting that this is happening with Trump as president because you've heard from Shapiro and others who have been critical of Trump because he does limit. He is an inherent stop and limit on the growth of the Republican Party. There was a lot of talk about the midterms like Trump attempting to appeal to black voters via Kanye or something. But without suburban whites, without suburban white women, and without kind of the rhinos, the Republicans in name only, who I think Henry Olson wrote about this and I wrote about this, they kind of had their revenge in the midterms because these were people who may have voted for Trump in 2016, but mostly did that because they didn't like Hillary Clinton. And then the last two years, they've just been like, bleh. And then they voted for Democrats in a lot of these suburban races. And Trump isn't going to try and reach out to them. That's not going to happen. There is no different Trump. There is no new Trump. It's interesting as this is happening that, you know, you see people within kind of the intellectual dark web having these conversations. But when I spoke with Shapiro, he told me when you don't agree on organizing principles, but your opposition is largely based on just being anti-left, you know, there's still a lot of disagreement about what you do when you've been chasing the car and then you catch the car. And so I actually kind of want to separate a little bit from, you know, you see Obviously, Michael Anton and Steve Bannon and Stephen Miller's close associations with Trump. But this actually doesn't really have that much to do with Trump in a lot of different ways because it's a political movement that Trumpism kind of took bits and pieces of, especially that, that language of opposition and that language of threat. But at the same time, a lot of people within this movement are very much opposed to Trump. And when it comes to you know, conversations about what their politics would look like in a vacuum, you know, if this were all taking place in a world where there was no Trump, what would they be talking about? What would they be agreeing upon? Would they just still be focused on their opposition to the New York Times or the mainstream media or Facebook and social media or something like that? Or would they just be saying, like, we have nothing in common except the things we don't like together? Yeah, I mean, I always find the idea that this movement that agrees with Donald Trump about everything and shares his entire style of politics is, like, secretly opposed to him to be a little bit of a confusing... Wait, now, who are we talking about? Because we've been talking about a bunch of different movements. Right. <laughs> People in the intellectual dark web. No, but, like, Eric, to... Eric Weinstein doesn't agree with Trump on policy. He's, he, like, a Bernie Sanders he, guy. Sam Harris. I've got a I lot have, of problems have, with Sam have, Harris, have, but he does not like Donald Trump. I've read a lot of profiles of these guys. I just... I find it confusing. They say they oppose Donald Trump. I guess I believe them that they are doing something to oppose him somehow. It appears to me that all of their energy is spent on this anti-left well, politics and on ginning up, in effect, a pro-Trump 
political movement, please email me. Tell me a list of things that you have done over the past three years to, in concrete ways, inhibit Donald Trump's political power, and I will apologize profusely on air. I always appreciate you guys' generosity of spirit. But, like, I want Ezra to uh, you like sometimes stand up for your own point of view on this. Like, you were talking about John Haidt, and it's like you have a difference of perspective because, like, his view of politics is shaped by what people say – on college campuses, whereas your view of politics is shaped by what people say in politics. So, <laughs> I mean, one of you is right about that, and, and one of you is is wrong. But I guess to agree with what you attributed to, to Ben Shapiro, Jane, I just like, I just always wonder, it's like, where's the beef here? Like, we're going to have a political movement that's based on whining about how the New York Times covered something? Like, really? But don't we? Do we? Yeah. yeah. We, we appear to. I, 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 I don't think, think that I'm... we do. Like, I think that we have a political movement that is dedicated to fanatically advancing the interests of American plutocracy, right? That, like, they could give some ground on these core material issues. They would win elections more and be more effective at achieving the things that the conservative movement pretends to care about. But, like, actually, all they care about still in the age of Donald Trump, still in the age of Breitbart, still in the age of politics is downstream from culture. All they care about is cutting the fucking estate tax, letting polluters put more toxic shit into water. Well, they also care a lot about asylum rules. They, I mean, well, we've done this on the show a bunch where sometimes we'll be like, oh, Donald Trump is being ineffective. Like, wait, wait, wait. He's not being ineffective if you're an immigrant, which is true. And so yeah. one thing I think that we need to premise here is that Political movement is an imprecise term here. We have two political parties that are coalitions. And that coalition includes a group of people who exist to do nothing except for cut taxes on rich people. And it also got taken over in some respects and then entered into a coalition government with a group of people who would be happy to raise taxes on rich people and like distribute the uh, proceeds to white people but really care about building a wall on the border. And like that is what is animating them. And – I take your point like in a bunch of these respects but what I think is sort of important is that the reason I am interested in understanding this is that I see this as where politics is going, right? Yeah. I be, Like my kind of macro view of politics right now is we're in this period of pretty rapid demographic change across a lot of different dimensions. We're going to become um, racially a majority-minority country. We're approaching a record percentage of residents of the country being foreign-born. So all kinds of stuff happening all across like the, the the demographic power dynamics, and that creates markets. Um, it creates market demand to to speak about this in a neoliberal way that people are going to try to address or meet in different ways. Donald Trump, I think, like was a politician who arose to address a market failure. The Republican base had become obsessively anti-immigrant, and its politicians were not obsessively anti-immigrant, or at least its national ones weren't, or they were pretending not to be, or whatever it might have been. So he came up. And addressed it, and he might not have been the perfect vehicle, but like the fact that he grabbed hold of the thing that people actually cared about, it was enough. And particularly in periods where the nature of what organizes parties and organizes political conflict changes, there's often a little bit of a lag time before an agenda emerges around that that's clear. I've seen this happen a lot with things that are more on the left, or people, you know, will say, like, why can't we have a, a real argument over material, real things and not about these cultural dignity concepts about how we talk about one another? And but then down the road, like things cohere into well, we should have anti-discrimination laws. And politics finds a way to 
express the emotions and kind of group conflicts that are powering it. And what's odd about the Trump administration is how little Trump cares about that kind of translation mechanism. Um, he doesn't have that many people around him. He didn't like Jeff Sessions. So some people were doing it. Stephen Miller's doing it. But most of the administration is not. But what I think is going to happen is they will. And it's like the next generation of Republican Party politicians, ones coming up behind Trump, are going to be more Trumpist even if they're not more like Trump. Now, maybe they won't have power because Trump will have brought the – like drove the party into a ditch. But I think this thing is a lag. Like I think that we're moving into a period where a lot more of the fights are going to be about this. And you know, it's like look at what we're talking about a lot coming out of the election. It's voter suppression in Georgia, right? There's a there's a sense that there's going to be this real fight in this country as there has been at other times about who gets to wield political power and what a party that is losing numbers can and will do to make sure it doesn't lose power in the long run. And you know, I think that in the state level, a lot of the fights are about this and there's like a lot of energy going into it. And I'm not sure it's as well organized at the national, but the reason this media stuff is important to me um, or these sort of like the the ideologists out in California constructing this are, are important to me is that they're framing the thing that is going to come next, right? In the same way that a lot of liberalism comes out of California later, um, I think a lot of conservatism is coming out of California now and you see some of it in Trump, but like there's a real effort to like mold something more precise out of it that, that I think we're going to be seeing influence politics for a long time. I also think it's interesting because these discussions that are happening in California, they're now starting to happen in places that are very different from California. You, you're seeing the same type of language of this concern about like how we have to fight the left on its own terms and we have to just you know work in opposition. But you're seeing people talk like that in Oklahoma. Oklahoma and in Montana and in states in which the demographics are far different, where the halls of power are already held by conservatives and Republicans. And yet you're still seeing that kind of language because the language of California conservatism has probably been the, the most impactful in how conservatives talk to one another and talk about their movement. And I've talked a little bit about, I'm not sure on here, but elsewhere in my life about kind of the nationalization of certain people in politics. And that nationalization is really interesting because it happens with a lot of California-based political figures. Now, clearly, you know, someone like Nancy Pelosi is someone where you're like, okay, that makes sense. Like, she's incredibly powerful within Democratic Party politics and has been very powerful within California politics for decades now. But you see that also with a figure like Maxine Waters or a lot of people who are in kind of the world of California politics, but for whom, you know, if you are just a regular person listening in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Maxine Waters has markedly little to do with your daily life, and yet you have heard of her. And I think that that really goes to how important and effective California conservatives have been about kind of reshaping how we talk about politics. And it's not always just about the politics we discuss. It's about how we do it and how these conversations have shifted, how it started to be a lot more about the media and a lot more about like what the New York Times is or isn't saying. I think that that's interesting because that is something that really speaks to the, this nationalization of both their concerns and of politics and culture at large, that you can have these conversations and these debates while not being in the place where these conversations or debates are really centered. Yes. All right. Well, as the cranky Bernie bro, <laughs> old line Marxist of this group, then we're going to wrap it up here, take a second break. We're going to come back and, and I'm going to deliver an exciting white paper purely about material conditions, but it's actually very relevant to this. 
Okay, so our white paper for you today is by David Matza and Amelia Miller. It's called Who Votes for Medicaid Expansion? Lessons from Maine's 2017 Referendum. So this was an interesting thing that happened back in, in 2017 is that Maine had a Democratic legislature. They had sort of kept pushing for Medicaid expansion. Paul LePage, a little bit unusually for a Republican governor of a northern state, wouldn't give in to this. A lot of southern Republican governors – block Medicaid expansion. But in the Midwest, they sort of mostly went along with it in some modified ways. But LePage was being very hardcore. So activists put an initiative on the ballot and it won uh, quite handily in a state that, you know, Maine has been a blue state, but it was sort of trending in the Republican direction. Trump did quite a bit better there than previous nominees. This is a sort of classic all white. I mean, it's literally the whitest state. It's not literally, literally all white, <laughs> but it's about as close as you can get to to an, an all white place in, in the contemporary United States. But LePage had like injected a lot of racial stuff into politics anyway. So the Medicaid expansion vote was interesting because, you know, here you have a, a purely economic, purely material issue with no real cultural element. And unlike in a more diverse state, right, in a state with a large African-American or Latino population, you might think, okay, like this social welfare state, it's it's just like going to support black people. I think that's very clearly like not the case in a state that's 99 percent white. But they look at what were the, the voting patterns here. And it's interesting because you see basically that the richer towns are the ones that voted for Medicaid expansion and the poorer towns voted against it. Um, and then if you further decompose that though, if you control for educational attainment, the effect goes away and Richer people were more likely to oppose and poor people were more likely to support, which is just to say that voting for Medicaid expansion was very, very highly correlated with education. So highly correlated that it sort of like pulled the income gradient backwards. And that's a phenomenon that we've seen a lot in recent American politics, uh, the white population polarizing along educational attainment lines. But it was, to me, fascinating to see it pulled out in this very specific context of like a core welfare state issue, really just talking about, I mean, Medicaid eligibility, even under expansion, only goes up to 133% of the poverty line. So like, there's no reason for like affluent college-educated professionals to want Medicaid expansion in like a concrete selfish state. The beneficiaries of this are overwhelmingly working-class white people. But it was just still the case that just as if we did a referendum on building a wall, among the white population, it was professionals who were very enthusiastic and working-class people very skeptical. So my question is whether or not we can actually separate this out from broader political and cultural trends as neatly as we want to. So, I right. mean, Medicaid in this context, in this period, is Obamacare, right? We're talking about Medicaid expansion under Obamacare. Paul LePage has done a, you know, as you mentioned, inserted a lot of this kind of hyper-polarizing conflict into all of these issues over this time. And so whatever effect it would have had in Maine specifically, it still was acting in a kind of nationally symbolic level. I mean, to some degree, this point about um, specific effects in a state – I think that would imply that no state would have ever said no because like no matter what you thought of the thing right. nationally, it was always going to give a bunch of money to your state specifically and to not get that money would meant your state was paying the taxes for it and not receiving full benefits. So in a world where things were being judged more specifically based on state material interests, I think we would have seen a, a very different Obamacare debate altogether. The other thing about the education piece of this is – and this is like touchy territory. But – 
In Identity Crisis, the John Sides, Lynn Vavrick, um, Michael Tesler book that looks at the 2016 election, it is just a huge amount of data analysis on what happened there. What they basically say is that education in modern American politics among white people is functionally acting as a proxy measure for racial attitudes. To my knowledge, they don't do this in this paper, but they basically in that book, they show all these different things where they show, okay, it looks like education, not income is doing everything. And then it's like you add on a racial resentment measure and then education goes away. And so one question here, I guess the question I have about the paper as a whole is whether or not this is actually a much more normal thing that just looks abnormal because we are assuming it to be a bounded state phenomenon when it's not, that just like in everything else in politics right now, there was a vote. The vote was about Obamacare. Obamacare is named in the way people think of it after Barack Obama, who's an African-American president. It's highly racialized. And so you had a vote that split white people among how they felt about Obama and race and a bunch of other things. But what we're testing for is education. So it looks a little bit different until we until we get at the core of that. Right. I would also be interested in that because I think that how we've, you know, and this happened during 2016 election also, that how we talk about these specific issues is very linked to who is doing the talking about them. I remember Huffington Post did a couple of studies in which they showed that, you know, the very same proposal, whether or not you said it was coming from Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, would get very different views based and, and I think that they talked about educational attainment because a policy that was proposed by hypothetical policy that was proposed by Hillary Clinton would get a lot more support from white people with higher educations whereas you know if you said that that same proposal was coming from Trump it would not and so I would also be interested because I think that it, it's interesting to talk I've now used the word interesting like 16 times and I apologize you know it's interesting that you say that oh my god <laughs> I'm fascinated by the fact that this study took place in a racially homogenous state, but I, like Ezra, am curious at how that would work outside of that state because I'm just interested to see where this would go if it were done on a more broad basis and done in a state that is not so homogenous. Wait, I mean, I I think that's right. And I mean, I I think Ezra's interpretation of these results is probably correct, that like in almost every context, we should see education as a easily measurable by the Census Bureau correlate of, of racial attitudes. But that's what's striking about this to me, that the best chance you would get to kind of de-racialize a topic, right, is to do a ballot initiative, right? So it's not about which elected officials do you trust, at least officially, and to hold it in a state that is almost entirely white, to hold it on, you know, an an issue that, that only impacts the people inside the state. And it is, of course, a different result, right? I mean, like Medicaid passes by a larger amount, than Hillary Clinton won the state, a yep. larger amount than the Democratic candidate won just this past year in, in 2018. So there is some delta in terms of like deracializing the politics, but it's very small. And to me, that's relevant to the conversation that we were having earlier because it's a very one-sided kind of impact here, right? Like there's a, you can play a lot of games of like who shot first on various topics related to identity politics. But like it's obvious that main Medicaid expansion proponents are not trying to inject themes of racial and ethnic conflict into politics, right? The people who do that in Maine are the Republicans, right? And they do it for a reason. 
And the reason is not fear of being swamped by immigrants who are going to displace their majority in a 99% state. It's to win the damn election. And it's a pretty effective tactic up there. Right, And I think it's worked well in North Dakota. I mean the reason Democrats have such a big sort of problem in the Senate is that the number of states that have such incredibly large white populations and relatively low levels of educational attainment, not a lot of people live in those states but but it's a lot of states there. And it works really well and it works well in a kind of one-sided way. You know, like this is by far the best shot you have. As Ezra was saying, if people tried to vote on these Medicaid things as a pure material consideration, like they would all pass, right? But there are people who don't want it to pass. And like this is how the game is played. And and one thing to say here is that Medicaid at this moment, November 2017, I actually think because we keep calling it Medicaid, we're slightly obscuring the issue. Obamacare Medicaid expansion. Yes is a little bit of an unusual issue to test this on because something that was surprising to me when I found this out was that support for the Clinton health care plan, which was a much more big government and in many ways controversial plan than Obamacare. It didn't pass, as people will remember. It was not racialized. Support for it did not correlate to racial attitudes at all. Now, it had some dynamics of, you know, the Democratic Party looks like this compositionally, the Republican Party looks like that. But if you tested support based on measures of racialism, you didn't see anything. Obamacare reflected Obama and Obama's presence racialized politics pretty substantially. You can read Michael Tesler for more on this and, and, and his work I think is really important to understanding all this. But Medicaid, I think one reason you're seeing some passage in unusual states right now is that Barack Obama isn't in office anymore. So some of the Obama-ness of Obamacare is draining out of it even as we speak. It just passed in Utah, right? Utah is not like a friendly to Barack Obama state. Um, And it is a little collectivist in unusual ways, but still. And, you know, if you ran these on Social Security, it it probably would not have education acting as a corollary for racial opinions. So just one thing uh, to note about this is that I don't want to generalize what I'm saying too heavily. A lot of what happened around Obama was distinct to Obama because of who Obama was and Obamacare was like – was the single policy most associated with him in that presidency. It was a policy that was the central policy cleavage between the two parties and there's a lot of things you could do in in American politics that would have some of these same material dynamics but would not have that dynamic. I think the minimum wage is actually a good example here. Minimum wage increases pass in all kinds of states you wouldn't expect. I'd be very curious to see if they have these dynamics in the vote. But I suspect they don't. Something that I want to tease out, though, it's interesting, and this is also probably a great conversation for another podcast, is that when we talk about, ah, we can have a deracialized version of this conversation, we have to have it in a majority white state. Because white people do not think of themselves as being white people. Well, or in Hawaii. True. I would be very curious to see how this would happen in an environment that is majority-minority or if you're having this on a very local level, if you're having these conversations in Milwaukee or Detroit or we're having these conversations in Washington, D.C., perhaps the Washington, D.C. of like 1992, but I digress. It's interesting how we – when we talk about a deracialized version of this conversation, we need to have it when it's just – it's not so much deracialized as monoracial. Yeah, but I think one interesting thing there is we do have we do have examples of it right like California and i think the way california not just embraced Obamacare. People don't know this part of the story very well, but there's a waiver program in Obamacare where you can get waivers to change the way the law works. And 
There are all sorts of things people thought folks might do with those waivers, but what California tried to do with the waiver was cover undocumented immigrants with California's own money. Yes. And like it didn't end up going through, but I think that's what that looks like in a more majority minority state. It has a – like the politics goes in like the literal opposite direction. Right. All right. So with that, bringing to an end, um, thanks, Jane, for coming on on a Tuesday, uh, bearing with us through a white paper segment. You know, I know it's it's a little new, but always exciting. Uh, folks, uh, hop in the, uh, the Weeds Facebook group if you've got some additional comments and things to say. I hope everybody has a very happy Thanksgiving this and year. if you have not listened to the latest season of The Impact, Sarah Cliff's policy podcast, I mean, Thanksgiving's a great time to give thanks for some actually interesting, good policies being tried at the state and local level. Like every episode of that podcast makes me feel just like a little better about politics at a time when I usually feel pretty bad about it. So check out The Impact. Get it wherever your podcast. Give me something, in, something interesting to say over dinner. It's fantastic. Thanks to our producer, Griffin Tanner. And the weeds will be back on Friday. Mm-hmm.